chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 61 and 62. So listen now to the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day along among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirit begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned in the lake. The swineherds ran off and told in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. And then in Luke 9, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, we're in the middle of a series of teachings called Prayer as Life. We're looking at prayer as a, as a way of life, a big concept of prayer, rather than just the little prayers in which we say and talk to God, but prayer as a whole way of life. And we've looked at three kind of basic ideas the last several weeks. Um, one is that prayer is a place of conversion, not where a place where we try to change God, but where God changes us when we're in the presence of Jesus. We looked at prayer as a journey. We're all on a journey, and prayer itself is a journey where in the presence of Jesus over time, um, God dismantles things in our lives that are no longer serving us in our journey of following Christ so that we can live a more sustainable life of love, so prayer as a journey. And then last week, we looked at prayer as a place of healing, where we find healing in the presence of Jesus. And today, we're kind of um, expanding, or it's a little bit of an extension on that thought, and I'm calling it an antidote to fragmentation, an antidote to fragmentation. When I was in um, graduate school studying theology, there was a quote that um, my professor shared that I have always remembered, and it's come to me in the last couple of weeks as I was preparing for this, and this is the quote, all of God does all that God does. Did you write it down? It'll change your life. All of God does all that God does. Another way of saying it is to say everything that God does is done by all of God. God doesn't do things halfway. God isn't absent-minded. God isn't missing his exit on the freeway because he's thinking about why he missed the putt on the 18th hole. Uh, God is present. Everything that is done by God is done by all of God. God is whole. He is not fragmented. And so when I say fragmentation, let's think about fragments and fragmentation. What do we think about when we think about fragmentation? We think about pieces of a whole disconnecting from one another. The image that comes to my mind when I hear the word fragment or fragmentation is actually a landmine like in a war, a landmine. My, my grandfather um, got a purple heart in the Korean War. He was, um, he was commanded to lead his troops through what later they discovered, unbeknownst to the commander, was an American minefield, a U.S. minefield, and a mine exploded and shrapnel, bits of pieces of metal, blew off in all different directions, and one caught my grandfather in the leg. And so he received a, a purple heart for that, and hopefully an apology um, but fragments are pieces of a whole that are, have been detached. Families experience fragmentation. Um, literally, when families break apart, there's fragmentation, but almost every family I've ever met has some level of fragmentation, even if they're still together. Friendships get fragmented, uh, various circumstances and things happen that cause friendships to break down and to fragment. Political parties, even within themselves, are fragmented. The Democrats are fragmented within themselves. The Republicans are fragmented. And that's not even to say the fragmentation between the groups. And of course, in their wisdom, the founders of our nation understood this fragmentation and tried to create a container that would allow for this fragmentation called a system of checks and balances that would allow us to move forward with productivity. 
Races are fragmented within themselves and of course um, uh, between races, this is nothing new to us. There's all kinds of fragmentation everywhere and even in our own hearts and lives. It is the fragmentation of creation and the human race that produces war, produces hate. It's what produces misunderstandings. And at the very center of Jesus' teaching, the core of his teaching, is an antidote or an answer to the fragmentation that we all experience in our lives and in the world. And it's recorded three different times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Like, what is the most important thing that we need to know? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then from another place in Scripture, he adds, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These four different parts should be functioning as a singular whole uh, in love of God. Now, I was reading an article last week um, by... A woman who died about 10 years ago uh, at the age of 84 from complications from Alzheimer's, her name was Beatrice Bruteau, and I had never heard of her until a couple of weeks ago, but she's, she's written many books on the contemplative life, and she's brilliant and wise and phenomenal, and I, um, in the original quotation in this article, she was writing about this, and she points out that uh, what we all know and what we heard, as Mike read this morning, which is that there is a missing statement there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't, the original quotation doesn't actually start that way. It starts with something else. It starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. At the very foundation of the great commandments is this acknowledgement that God is one. God is singular. All that God does is done by all of God. God isn't divided. Um, and so that's why when Jesus was with people, they were very compelled and they really loved being in his presence because he attended to their needs. He was fully present wherever he was not trying to get on to the next thing, and his presence was healing. I'm going to come back to that article um, that I referenced in a couple of minutes. But let's think about this story. One day in the life of Jesus, he was with his disciples, and they were in a boat, and there was a great big storm. Seems to be a common experience with Jesus and the disciples in a boat in a storm. And the storm got so large that it blew them, drove them beyond the boundaries for for Jewish people beyond the boundaries of Israel into a place called the Ten Towns. You're not supposed to go to the Ten Towns You're, as a good Jewish person because over there is, is kind of like the other side of the tracks. And out comes this man who's you know running around in a cemetery and he's a crazed man, literally. Um, and we later find out that he was threatening the people. And so they tried to chain him up in the cemetery and he breaks the chains and he's beating himself with rocks and cutting himself and bruising himself. So he's a cutter, a self-harmer. And he's screaming among the tombs. And he comes running out towards Jesus as Jesus gets out of the boat with the other disciples. And now the other disciples, of course, they've been taught their whole lives 
not to go over there. So I kind of picture them saying, you know, Jesus, we, we told you about this place that we're not supposed to go over here, and now you want to get out of the boat. Everybody in this town is crazy and, and violent. Just look at this guy, they're probably thinking. And, uh, but nevertheless, the guy comes running toward him, screaming, and Jesus, uh, and he says, Jesus, son of the most high God, swear that you won't torture me. And then Jesus, uh, which, which shows how much the demons already know about Jesus. Everybody else in the Gospels are confused about the identity of Jesus, including his disciples. They don't know who he is. Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? One of the, um, only the demons know who Jesus is, not just in terms of his identity, but also in terms of his power and authority. Swear that you won't torture me, they say to him. And Jesus asks the man, what is your name? It's a really interesting question. Um, for one thing, it's a question that gives dignity to this man, uh, this person who's being controlled by some greater force. Tell me your name. You're a child of God. You're made in God's image. Who are you really? And then to ask a man who is so fragmented, so many different persons controlling him, what is your singular name? What is your one name? What is your true identity? Now, he can't say his true identity. We've lost his real name. It's been lost to history, and the gospel writers know that the only thing that has taken over this man's identity was his condition. My name is Legion. We're, there are many of us. This is a man who has either got multiple personality disorders or lots of demons or a combination of the two, and he's tormented and he's tormenting. And the demons say, don't just send us into nowhere. Send us into the swine, you know. Send us into something else that we could take over. And so Jesus somehow commands these demons to come out of the man, sends them into the pigs, and the pigs go running off a cliff and drowning in the sea. The disciples, being kosher Jews, probably don't really care all that much that these pigs have just drowned. But... But the owners of the pigs had a pretty hard time with this because, you know, they were economy for them. And so they go running back to the town all upset, telling everybody what had just happened. They grab the, you know, and everybody else in the town, they go running back down to see this great sight and this man who's, you know, they had tried to chain up and what's going on. And, and what do they find out? Um, they see that he is um, clothed and in his right mind. Clothed and in his right mind. And the odd thing is that it says that they were terrified. You'd think they'd be happy about this. Yeah, he's clothed and in his right mind, but they're terrified by the power of Jesus to change a life. And the man says to Jesus, let me go with you, Jesus. Let me go, let me be one of your disciples and get in the boat and follow you. And Jesus says, no, you go back to your town and, and your people and you tell them how good the Lord has been to you. And that's what the man does, and, uh, which then paves the way for the further spread of the gospel in the 10 towns, in the Decapolis. Legion, my name is Legion, we are many. All of us are a bit fragmented. All of us are Legion. Doesn't mean that we're possessed by many demons and trapped in a cemetery, beating ourselves with rocks. 
But how many voices do we hear in our heads leading us in various directions? Our minds take us to many different places at all times. And the longer a person stays with Jesus and follows Jesus, and the deeper she goes into that life with Jesus, the more of her life will become integrated into a singular person, into a a whole, the more harmony. And that singular person as a Christian is Christ himself. We are learning to leave behind all the other little identities so that we might take on the one true identity that is who we are, is the presence of Christ. It is Christ. As a Christian, the word Christian means little Christ. And in our baptism, we take on that identity. You know, if you take um, two clocks that are Uh, moving at a different pace, eventually they, I can't really do that very well with my fingers, but eventually they start going at the same pace and they can they synchronize with one another. Um, Or you think about crickets. If you've ever listened to crickets at night and and the harmony, the, the, um, the ways in which they synchronize their sounds and the movements and the pauses between their sounds at night, it's a phenomenal thing. It bears witness to the God who's making all things new and, and reconciling all things to himself and bringing harmony to creation. And that's sort of what happens when we center ourselves in Christ. We start to become more and more in harmony with the movement of God, the movement of the Spirit, the movement of Jesus around us. But being centered in Christ isn't easy. It actually takes hard work, hard work. Our best example, of course, of this integrated life, this harmonious life, is Jesus himself, right? He was completely unfragmented. People are using the phrase um, fully realized human being. Jesus was a fully realized human being. Um, And that's why people are so drawn to him. There's no gap between what he said and how he lived his life. He was fully integrated, fully whole. Um, And and so um, this is very different, of course, than me. I hear many voices. Jesus heard one voice, the voice of the Father. Have you ever paid attention to your thoughts and where they go, like for just a few minutes? It's, it's not for the faint of heart. Just take a few minutes during the week and try to pay attention to where where your thoughts go. It's really amazing, actually. Um, And in fact, if you had a a friend who was sitting next to you on the couch and they talked to you the way that your mind talks to you, you'd probably want to figure out how to end that friendship as soon as possible. Because it's incessant. It doesn't stop. It just goes and it goes and it goes. And we were, Mike was talking about this in the class this morning about mindfulness and, and what um, some people call the, the, monkey, the monkey mind, right? It's just bouncing all over the place, um, except it's in our heads. It's not another person. Jesus didn't have that issue. He didn't wonder, oh my goodness, I've, I've got to get these new tires on my car. Um, I hope we make the budget. Um, oh, what are we going to do? Or, or when are we going to have a bluegrass thing? Um, no, one voice, the voice of the Father. I only do what the Father tells me to do, Jesus says. And that's why he can leave things unfinished and move on because he's listening to the voice of the Father. 
not the many voices. And here's the transition. You might be saying, well, that's great for Jesus. That's why he's the son of God and the savior of the world and, and I'm not. But here's the thing. You're made in the image of God too. God is one. You're meant to be one. God is integrated. We're meant to be integrated. We can become more like Christ um, as Trinitarians, we, we don't believe that there are three gods. We believe in one God, in three persons, in perfect harmony, doing one thing, love, and doing it well. And so we're made in, the, in that God's image, and therefore we're meant to be growing in an increasing way uh, to become more like that God. So the question is, well, why do we bumble around? Why do we... Why do we listen to the many voices that lead us in many different directions? Why do we have them? Well, some of it is simply disinformation. We know about disinformation these days. A lot of times when, when we experience a wound in our life, whether it's early childhood or even into adulthood, that wound becomes um, a voice that tells us a lie about who we are. And we can listen to that voice telling us disinformation that isn't true. And that will lead us in the wrong direction. Some people even have been told uh, by religious teachers lies about who they are. Some people have been told, um, uh, you, you know, the reason you, you're so bad and rotten that that, uh, that God sent his son Jesus to die so that he could love you. This is really bad theology. Love is primary. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't give his only son so that he could love the world. We don't earn our way into God's love. We don't step our way into God's love. God's love is the motive. It comes first. You're a child of God. And somehow we've got in our journey with faith, in our life with God, and in our life of prayer, we have to recover that truth of who we are as God's beloved. And that's our identity. But some of us can say, okay, I know that. I know that. In fact, I've been hearing that for the last couple of years all the time, every Sunday pretty much. I know that. Um, but if you look at my own life, it doesn't seem to totally match up all the time. I realize that I don't really live this way all the time out of my true identity as God's beloved. In fact, nobody other than Jesus did. And so we say, well, why is there fear then when I know that God is caring for every hair that is on my head? Why is there anxiety if I know in the promise of God? Um, so we can have the right information in our heads, but we can have a different ex lived experience in our lives. We haven't realized what we believe at a deeper level, and this is the journey from the head to the heart. And then we've got to ask, well, why then don't we experience that? And there are many reasons, but I think one of the main reasons, the biggest reason, is we haven't done the hard work. Um, we were talking about spiritual disciplines and, and practice as a practice. And it is the spiritual disciplines, the practice of prayer, that drives the beliefs from our heads into our hearts. Um, and and so it does take hard work, but it's not earning God's grace. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And so God's grace comes as a free gift to us, and in response to that, we say, yes, Lord, I want to discipline myself 
so that you would transform um, me from the inside out. And as we do that, this hard work, um, we seek to release ourselves from our own prisons and our own attachments and our own ego constructs that we um, create that are intended to try to keep us safe. And so what we often think is, if I can get this right, then I can be loved. And then we create a structure, a persona, a scaffolding around our true self that isn't true, that Jesus says then needs to die. So he says, anyone who wants to follow me must die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Well, what self is he talking about? What self do we die to? Not our biological selves, but the self that Paul referred to as the old self, the small self, the, the ego self that we create through our experiences in life um, when we feel unsafe. And so we create this to avoid pain and keep ourselves safe. And then what happens is we become in competition with everyone else. And we say, is, is that person then safe or are they not safe? It, do, does that person have more power than me or do I have more power than, than them? What can they do to me? What can I do to them? I don't know about whether I like that person. What, where are they from? Oh, they're from that other group. And these things go on and on in, in our heads. Um, and, and it's all created in a vain attempt to keep ourselves safe. When we come, come in the presence of Jesus, we realize that we are safe that we are safely held in God's love. And so there's nothing to fear. When we fear the God above, we have nothing to fear below us. So um, let me get back to this quote, this uh, article, leave us with something very practical that we can try to do in this journey of prayer throughout the week. Um, Beatrice Bruteau's article. She basically makes this point that we're meant to um, be unified, our different faculties, our mind, our soul, you know, our heart, our strength, um, are meant to be unified in one direction. And she calls it concentration. And she refers to this parable that Mike read um, about putting at Jesus saying, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're distracted, you're not fit. The kingdom is only in reality. It is not somewhere else. And so you have to concentrate. She calls it concentration. And this is what she says. So how do you do this concentration, this putting the hand to the plow without looking back? That is bringing the whole heart, mind, strength, and soul into one unified life. She says, you just do what you're actually doing in the moment pretty simple. Without thinking, now this is the hard part though, without thinking or feeling about the fact that you're doing it. When you set your hand to the plow, you just concentrate on plowing straight ahead without looking back to see what you plowed or how well you plowed. You put your whole mind, your mind into plowing and you can substitute plowing with doing the dishes or the laundry or hiking or working or studying uh, at school, whatever it is. You put your whole mind into the plowing, the activity, in the moment in which you're actually doing it. You don't allow the mind to divide in two, half on the plowing and half on the plowed. 
In fact, if you put your whole mind on the activity, not dividing some part to look back and see what you have plowed, you'll cut a beautiful furrow. Then you put your whole will into plowing. You don't divide your will in two, partly consenting to plowing and partly resenting plowing, uh, wishing you were doing something else. You give yourself to this activity totally as you do it. In other words, either plow or don't plow, but don't plow and complain about having to plow. Just plow. Um, The act of plowing and the will to plow are the same thing. And she says the same is true for your imagination. Similarly, don't allow your imagination to conjure up some other scene for you to enjoy in daydreaming while you plod behind your plow. The imagination must be here now. This is where you actually are. This is reality, not somewhere else. Don't create a fantasy. Know who you are and where you are and what you're doing and really be there. Finally, put all your feelings into this plowing because this is where your life is at the moment. You have no other life here and now except this plowing. Therefore, feel this plowing thoroughly. Feel it in every way you can. Feel it through your body with all your senses, with all your emotions. Become plowing. This is you at the moment. This is where you really are and what you are really doing. And that's how you center yourself, how you concentrate. I got to tell you, I've been trying this and it's very difficult for me. I'm terrible at it. Um, And I'm, I'm like, I'm predisposed to being terrible at it. Some people are naturally more better at that, more better at being present. And, and that is not me. I have to work really hard at this. But when I do um, and, and start to notice and start to pay attention and start to be present, there is a peace that comes over. Um, and it is a peace that passes understanding. And so we've got to do the hard work and we've got to do the heart work. We've got to go to the heart and pull together in the presence of Jesus or allow Jesus to pull together our fragmented selves so that like legion we can stand with Jesus clothed and in our right minds increasingly more available and more present to the ones that we love and the ones that God calls us to love and even our true selves we discover our true selves in the presence of Jesus so may that uh, be your practice this week in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.